0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas, Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speaker is featured on this message. It is awesome to be here. Uh, I am excited to be here because you guys are my family. Um, You're my family in a few really important ways. First, um, if you believed in Christ, you are my brother or sister in Jesus, um, and we're part of the great family of God together. Um, and that's a reason to praise God. Um, as Craig mentioned, we're also family in the sense that we're part of the same family of churches, and, and not just the same big, broad family of churches, but uh, six churches in Texas, including ours and four others, are in a specific kind of regional partnership where I get to see Craig and Rob and Bob regularly. Get to benefit from them. I'm grateful to each of your pastors uh, for different reasons. Um, But Craig, man, you need to know this. At a crucial time in my life as a pastor, Craig was involved with helping and supporting our church and helping and supporting me personally. And um, God used him along with some other men to, um, to help our church get to the place where it is today. So thank you for making an investment in our church through that. Uh, we love that we're in partnership. We can't wait to plant churches and be on mission with you for years to come. Um, and you guys also feel like my family because I know a bunch of people here, especially everybody in an identity shirt, Are you guys still awake? I don't understand what is happening with you guys. We've done everything humanly possible to tire them out, and they seem as enthusiastic as when they arrived on Friday, which is just crazy and concerning, or I might just be getting old. So, um, love a number of you guys. Um, it feels like family walking in, getting to greet a bunch of people in the lobby. Thanks for letting me be here with you. I'm excited to open up God's word with you. So, let's do that. Let's open up God's word to Leviticus chapter 19 which is exactly what you were hoping to hear walking into church today. Let's get into Leviticus. And if you have one of the pew Bibles, that's on page 57 here. We're going to be talking about the topic of hospitality, as Craig mentioned. And um, I grew up in a large extended uh, family that was mostly Hispanic. So our holidays were loud. They were crazy. Uh, I had four aunts and one uncle and a ton of cousins on this side of the family. Um, One thing, though, I always appreciated about my family is that they seemed to take special delight in having random people um, invited to our family gatherings. We loved it, especially my four aunts. They, like, went to work on anybody that was new. You know, somebody brings a a classmate, like, oh, man, and they sit them down and feed them, like, two or three plates of enchiladas and then criticize them for not eating enough. Like... You don't seem hungry, right? And they make all kinds of food, bringing them in. It was fun. Some I remember some family gatherings, we would get out and play volleyball. They were pulling random people onto the volleyball court. And I remember this one Christmas. It was very memorable. One Christmas where it was especially loud, especially crazy family gathering. And a group of unsuspecting carolers, Christmas carolers, showed up at the front door. And had no idea what they were about to experience. So they show up at the front door and... And one of my aunts realizes what's happening, brings some people, and then begins demanding, like not inviting, but demanding that they come inside and eat food with us. And of course, you know, they're there. They're in their winter stuff. They're, they're on, a, on a little circuit of the neighborhood. And my aunts begin pleading. And more and more aunts start pouring out of the front door, demanding them to come in. And they just keep, no, we got to go. We got to keep moving. And so then, you know, what we did? We, we brought the meal to them. And so my aunts start shouting back at the cousins, any of the cousins running around, like, you, you go get a plate of enchiladas. And you, you go get a plate of bunuelos. And bunuelos are these awesome things, three of the best things in the world, tortillas, fried with sugar on top, okay? So these stacks of things. So bunuelos are being passed down like a little chain from person to person all the way to the front door. These carolers who have like songbooks are like taking food and dessert. Some guy has like a plate of hot chocolate. And, and, and the thing I love about my family is that it only took five minutes for them to go from strangers to friends to family, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today the process of taking people from being strangers to being friends to being family. So we're going to see this in, in Leviticus chapter 19. This is uh, God informing his people about how they're to live and act in this new place under his rule. So let's read together Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and authoritative word. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Father, I pray for us as we open up your word today. Lord, let us, let us right now um, be willing to put our lives on the table um, and offer them to you and say, Lord, what do, you, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do? What are you calling me to do today? Pray, you'd give us grace in this moment as we open your word. Pray that, that this would be clear, that it would be helpful, it would be effective, and Lord, that we would leave changed by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to ask three key questions today. This is not going to be a typical like expository sermon. This is going to be more uh, taking this topic and seeing this thread in the Bible. And the first question we're going to ask today is, what is biblical hospitality? Um, I don't know about you guys, but in in a lot of Christian circles, when we think of hospitality, we think of like the hospitality night at your small group where you don't have to do the study and there's a lot more food and a lot more people show up. I don't know if that happens with you. I grew up uh, with my dad as a small group leader, and that was my favorite. When I heard hospitality night, I was like, I'm there. And so th- that can be something that's, that's common in Christian circles. Or maybe there's a hospitality time at, a, at the church or at an event. But that's not exactly what the Bible is talking about when it comes to biblical hospitality. Um, biblical hospitality, especially in Leviticus 19 and in the New Testament, is rooted in the ancient Near East Uh, concept of hospitality. And in the ancient Near East, hospitality was a matter of supreme importance. It was really a matter of life and death at times. Because when people traveled or when they came to a new place and they didn't know anyone, they would be in danger. They had no protection. There were no social safety nets. There were no hotels. And literally, without knowing someone, they could be left out in the cold and exposed to the elements. And so perhaps what would happen, they would travel to another place and they would have a distant relative, like their third cousin or fourth cousin twice removed or something. And and they would look to their, their family to take them in to give them a place to stay, to feed them, to vouch for them in the community, like these guys are okay, don't, don't kill them, and to offer them protection from people around them. The commitment of hospitality was one of the most solemn and sacred commitments in the ancient Near East. Once you committed to this, you were committing even the ruin of your life and your property to this person. You're gonna give all that you have to make sure that they are okay. Hospitality was not convenient, it was not easy, it was costly. It took great sacrifice. So that is why it is so surprising to read Leviticus 19, because this is something unlike any, any other country in the ancient Near East had. To say, when a stranger is among you, you, sh- you shall not do him wrong. Okay, that's maybe kind of standard among some countries. In fact, you're to go further. You're to treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You're to treat people you don't know as if they were your extended family, as if they're passing through town. You're gonna offer all of this hospitality to them to protect them and feed them and and, and clothe them and, and make sure they have all that they need. You're to do this to people that are not your people. And then it goes even further. It just keeps going. You shall love him as yourself. So, not just, okay, provide some kind of token service, or you can sleep in in the back on the couch, but you're to love him as yourself. This is talking about maybe it's your bed that gets given up, maybe it's your best food you've been saving that gets offered to them. You love them as yourself. In our world today, this is a very foreign concept, but we get glimpses of it in certain places, and in, especially in the story of Marine Marcus Luttrell. Um, he was a SEAL that was dropped on a mission into Afghanistan, and uh, through a, a bad series of circumstances, they began taking heavy fire. There, his, his whole group is decimated. He ends up wounded and hurting, and really unable to defend himself any longer, when a local villager stumbles on him. And instead of reporting him or putting him out of his misery, the, the local villager decides to take him into his protection, seeing he's, he's needy, he, he's wounded, he's hurt. And in fact, what he does is he brings this Marine, this American Marine, to his village. And when he arrives, the village is not happy because they understand that this man has offered hospitality to this Marine. And once he's inside their village, the whole village must offer him hospitality. And that's exactly what happens. The Taliban shows up at the village doorstep and demands that the, the soldier be returned. And, and what happens? All of these people turn and begin resisting the Taliban, offering their own lives, potentially the, the, their whole village to protect this person. He was a stranger, but they. Offered hospitality. See, that's hospitality. It's not just, oh, we're having a hospitality night. It goes far, far, far deeper. And here's a question you should be asking Why would God demand this of his people? Why would he call his people to do this? He gives them an explanation. He says, for or because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. See, God is referencing the whole episode of their captivity in Egypt. This was a time when the people of God were far off. Um, they were oppressed. They were under um, the slave rule of Egypt. And God came to them and rescued them and cared for them. And in essence, God wants his people to remember remember the way that I treated you. Remember what I gave and how far I went to bring you home to this land now. In this new land, I want you to treat others differently. Treat others the way that I have treated you. God is a God of hospitality. If hospitality means taking people who are far off and bringing them near to you, despite the cost and despite the sacrifice, no one has done this more than God. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. See, we were the unrighteous. We were people who had rebelled against God and rejected God and as a result were cast out. From, from his presence. And, and our unrighteousness should have left us in exile to, 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 to be alone as strangers and under his wrath forever. And yet what happens is that Jesus comes and he's not unrighteous, he's righteous. He deserves to be in the presence of God, welcome gladly into the presence of God. And what does he do? He gives his life in exchange for ours. The righteous for the unrighteous. Dying in our place for our sins so that if we believe in him, our sins would be paid for. And so that he might bring us to God. He didn't just die for us and then leave us out there. He he brought us in. See, this... This, friends, is the heart of biblical hospitality, that Christ would come to us and give of himself, give everything he had, even his own life, that the father would send the son, his beloved son, so that we could be brought near. And listen, friend, if you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're exploring, or it's been a while since you've been to church, this is, this is the heart of what we want you to hear today. This this offer from God that you could be not far off, but brought near. And not that you need to attend church a certain number of times or do a certain number of good deeds so that God would, be, would get you brought near. No, no, no. You're unrighteous. And your only hope is to cling to the righteous Jesus Christ. But when you do that, he... He will pay for your sins. He will offer his protection from the wrath of God. He will bring you near. That offer is on the table for you today. You today could leave welcomed in to the very presence of God and relationship with God that you were made for. And for all of us who are Christians, let's not let this get old for us. The fact that we come in to the presence of God when we were once strangers and aliens and because of what Jesus has done, we've been brought in. And as a result of that, this is all over the Bible. Um, it's, it's, it's in the New Testament as well, not just the Old Testament. God's people in the New Testament are commanded to do this. 1 Peter 4 9 says this show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think the without grumbling is for people like me. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is repeated in Romans 12 to show hospitality. Uh, Hebrews 13.2 charges us not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers even. And so this hospitality is both to be extended within the church and outside the church. And this is important within the church because in the New Testament, the the churches that were forming were made up of radically different people. These were Jewish people and Gentile people. These were upper class and lower class. These were Greek-speaking Roman people and people who grew up learning the Torah Right? There were people that probably didn't know Jesus that were among the believers that were radically different. And, and they're commanded to show hospitality to one another, to, to, to bring others in, whether they're in the church or outside. And so all of this leads up to this simple definition of hospitality. And if you can get this, this is like the core of what I'm saying today. Hospitality is, biblically defined, the art of turning strangers into family. Biblical hospitality is the art of turning strangers into family. Just like my crazy aunt did, shouting for more bunuelos, pulling these people in and making them family. And that's what hospitality is. But second, let's ask this question. Why is hospitality crucial to making disciples? Now, that's definitely a leading question, but I'm going to answer it because I get to have the podium and I'm going to speak. Um, Why is hospitality crucial to making disciples? Because I believe it is, and I want to argue that it is. Often we see hospitality sometimes as a separate category of Christian thing to do. We we compartmentalize our Christianity to have like an evangelism box and like a mercy ministry box and then a kind of community group box or learning theology box. And then there's another one that's hospitality. And so we're constantly trying to make sure, okay, did I do some evangelism? Did I do some mercy? Did I learn some theology? Did I show some hospitality? But I want to argue that hospitality is different. The hospitality is actually the context for a whole bunch of those other things. It's the vehicle for a bunch of those other things. So I'm I'm going to make three or four statements that will build on top of one another to argue this. First, our mission is making disciples. As we've seen, because God is a missionary God, we are to be a missionary people. In the New Testament, the church is given this task of extending the invitation to Jesus' family, to everyone. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he commissions the church with this mission, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is our mission. We are to go. This this means intentional effort. Christians are never to be a stationary people. We should always be moving toward people, moving toward other people. Going takes intentional, concerted effort. And we go to make disciples. Now, a disciple is just a follower of Jesus. It means somebody who's trusted in Christ for their salvation and reoriented their lives around following him. And we're to make disciples, meaning we're to bring other people who don't know Jesus along to follow Jesus. We're to tell them about Jesus and explain Jesus to them. And we are to make disciples and mature disciples, meaning these people, once they begin to follow Jesus, we're to bring them into our lives and then help them learn to do all that Jesus commanded them. Meaning help them learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in every area of life. And this applies to everyone, whether they're 8 or 18 or 80, we're, we're encouraging people about what it means to follow Jesus. That's our mission, moving people from where they are to be, with, to be near the Lord and helping them learn to follow Jesus. Now, I start here because our mission so easily drifts to become other things in our lives, right? It's so easy to forget like, oh yes, this is the point of our life. This is the point of church, Sometimes our mission drifts to become making our sales goals for the quarter, right? Or if you're a parent, maybe your mission drifts to your whole life is oriented around getting that one child a scholarship. Or um, maybe it's oriented around getting to a certain place so you can retire and do what you want. Those, those things so easily become the overarching mission that shapes everything we do. But this scripture says, this is to be our overarching mission. Our mission is to make disciples, And second here, making disciples means speaking and displaying the gospel of Jesus. How do we make disciples? We speak and display the gospel of Jesus. We speak the gospel of Jesus, meaning we we at some point must tell people about Jesus. We can't just try to be good people. We can't just try to be good friends, although we should do that. To make disciples means that we talk about Jesus at some point. In that relationship, the good news about Jesus goes from our lips to their ears. We tell them about Jesus. In light of what God has done, that should not be, it can be a scary thing, but it should not be um, an impossible thing. Why? Because we have a whole lot of good stuff to tell about what Jesus has done for us, right? It should be one of those things We're like, man, you're not going to believe you're not going to believe what Jesus is doing in my life. You're not going to believe what I used to be and what I am now. We, we share the gospel of Jesus. And, and we also share the gospel of Jesus, not just with unbelievers, but with believers themselves. Paul himself tells the Roman church, I'm eager to come to you and preach the gospel to you also. Meaning, it's not, the gospel is not just for the unbelievers out there so they can learn, to, they, they can become followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus need the gospel so they can learn to follow Jesus in every area of life. So we speak the gospel to one another around the dinner table, over coffee, in all kinds of contexts. And then we're to live to display the gospel. Our, our, our actions should display the truth of the gospel we're speaking. In 1 Peter 2 The apostle says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning they're going to speak against you, but I want your good deeds to be so obvious that they can't deny them. And so that on the last day, more people like them will have come to know Jesus because of your good conduct. Titus 2.10 says this, that we're to watch how we live, even in our workplaces, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the gospel. It's, it's almost as though the gospel is this, this picture. What Jesus has done, his life, death, and resurrection are this picture. And, and our conduct is a picture frame for it. To help that pop out even more. To be even more clear in the world around us. That's what making disciples means. But, and this is where kind of the rubber is gonna meet the road here. If all that is true, making disciples requires us to get close with people. Now, you can do drive-by kind of gospel ministry. You can leave tracks around in um, and, and secret and hope somebody picks one up, or you can have a quick conversation with somebody at the airport or in line at Starbucks, and that's, that's fine. But normally, I think the normal pattern of following Matthew 28 requires us to get close. It requires you to get close to people to tell them about Jesus. And often that's not just one conversation, that's multiple conversations. It requires you to get close to be able to to help them learn to follow Jesus and learn what that means. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.5 that he came to this one church in Thessalonica, and when he came, he says, we were ready to share with you, listen to this, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. See, people, people aren't, don't become very dear to us unless we get close with them, right? He, he not only came to communicate the gospel, he didn't just drop off a, a packet of gospel information. He shared not only the gospel of God, but his own self. Meaning this church knew him. These people he was telling about Jesus knew him. When they turned to follow Jesus, they knew him. His character, his work ethic, who he was, how he lived. You know, a few years ago, um, our extended family um, took, on, uh, took on a bit of a project, um, unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. We So my mom um, was working out with a trainer, as a trainer who's a girl in her 20s, and my mom, this trainer, got along pretty well, and so they started building a relationship, and, and when they were train, it wasn't just like business, they were, they were talking through life stuff, and so one day my mom said, you know what, what are you doing for dinner, you know, it's dinner time, we're here at the house, why don't, why don't you just stay for dinner, I've got something, and she said, like, okay. I mean, sure. So she stayed and hung out with my family. Um, my parents and my sisters were at home and, and then she started staying for dinner a little bit more often. And all of a sudden on our extended family, family night on Sundays, we often all get together. Um, and, and she got brought into that. And all of a sudden she started coming to family night and we started inviting her. And what was awesome is we got to this one point where we forgot to invite her and she just showed up anyway. And we thought, okay, there we go. Now you're part of the family. And along the way, my mom was talking to her about Jesus. um, But she didn't come to faith in a week or in a month. She didn't even come to church for two or three or four. I think it took six months for her to agree to come to church after getting to know our family. Making disciples requires getting in close with people. And this is what we're called to. So if all this is true, here's the big conclusion. If all this is true, then hospitality is a crucial context for making disciples. Hospitality cannot be for us just an optional add-on that we we say okay i want to add on to my christianity a little evangelism a little mercy No, no no hospitality is often the context the vehicle for so much of this other stuff that as we're turning strangers into friends it provides a context for showing mercy and telling them about jesus and learning the bible together if our god is a missionary god If we are his missionary people, if being a missionary people involves demonstrating and declaring the gospel, and if doing that requires us to get up close and personal with people, if all that is true, then turning strangers into friends is one of the most powerful, effective, necessary gospel weapons we have in making disciples. Not just an optional add-on. I want to share an illustration that I found powerful. Um, it's the case of maybe somebody you think, okay, I understand that we're supposed to show hospitality. I understand this is supposed to be part of our mission, but, but how far is this really supposed to go? Well, I'm going to give you a case study here. I'm going to take the case of a radical leftist lesbian college professor who was vehemently anti-Christian. And if I just described you, if that's the boat you're in today, we're glad you're here. Uh, But I think you'd agree that's probably not the typical Bible Belt kind of person that shows up and attends church. Well, her name was Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and she seemed happy in her life, living with her partner, writing uh, the kind of fiery essays against Christianity. And as a result of these fiery essays, Christians would like write fiery letters back to her. So she would open her mail, expect she'd like have them in a pile, she says, and she would go through the mail like, oh, wow, okay, you know, and these Christians would be like, ah. And, and yet one day she got a different kind of letter. She got a letter from a pastor named Ken who wasn't vitriolic, was asking some questions about what she'd written, sharing a bit of his perspective, wondering what her perspective was on some things, and of all things, inviting her to dinner with him and his wife. She says this about it. She says, "Um, I decided to accept, but my motives at the time were pretty straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. In other words, she's thinking, this is not going to go well, but at least I can write about it, right? She's gathering some material, but something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floy and I became friends. Listen to this. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics, and they didn't act as if some, some these conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate, When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. So this pastor, his wife, and his wife encouraged her to begin reading the Bible for herself. And so she says, I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then, one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. I was conspicuous with my butch haircut, but I reminded myself that I came to meet God not to fit in. And what, what she goes on to describe is that the church, this church of people who are very different from her, welcome her into their life as a church. And God eventually used that, that relationship with Ken and Floyd and that church to lead her to Christ. See, the pastor and the church, they turned a stranger Into a friend. And in doing this, they showed her the story of of a God who takes a stranger and makes him a friend through the blood of Jesus. Do you see how their proclamation lined up with what their lives were like when they got close? And it was this combination of gospel proclamation and close proximity and gospel display that resulted in making the gospel clear for her. I, I love this. You know, I've been talking to... Uh Rob and to Craig about what's been going on at Grace Church. And man, I am so excited about what God is doing here. I see you guys with a unique opportunity, a unique location, a unique mission, I think, in this area. And one of the things that, that, that I already see in you is that you are a church of hospitality. You do bring people in and, and make them friends. But as I've talked to Craig and Rob, I know that more and more people are coming now. And at times I can not be like, whoa, where are these people coming from? Our church is experiencing a little bit of a similar dynamic where a lot of people show up and sometimes I'm not not even sure Um, I know the people my wife's sitting with on some Sundays. And, and, And what can happen is it can be like a little overwhelming. But I want to encourage you, Grace Church, that this call toward hospitality is a call for you today to be known and marked as a church that loves and practices hospitality. I would love it if, if you were known on Frisco Square as the kind of place that you can't walk to the steps of the church without somebody reaching out and turning you from a stranger into a friend. And I see so much of this. So a lot of this is an encouragement. Keep going. Keep pursuing the Lord. Do not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because hospitality is a crucial context and vehicle for making disciples. Now, third question. How can we pursue biblical hospitality? Okay, so I've tried to argue biblical hospitality is the art of turning strangers into friends. I've tried to argue that that, in fact, is not optional, but, but absolutely crucial to making disciples. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Here's some practical suggestions. First, recognize that hospitality requires sacrifice. In the ancient world, hospitality was really costly, Okay? Again, like I said, there're no social safety nets. If you gave somebody something that you had, that meant you didn't have it anymore, and you didn't know where you might get more of it. There were limited resources. Your reputation, your own safety sometimes were were at risk. Hospitality required sacrifice, and it will require sacrifice for us today. Hospitality requires us to open our homes. Now look, when, hospitality, when the Bible talks about hospitality, I think something in all of us rebels a little bit. Because God's asking for, for us to allow other people to invade our space, and in fact, not just allow them to, but to encourage other people to like invade our lives and space. And there's something in that, like as an American, or maybe especially as a Texan, that I like being independent, right? right? I love the big come and take it flag, right? Like, but that's probably not the banner you want over your hospitality ministry, <laughs> See, hospitality requires us to open our homes. We have this American idea that our home is our castle, right? Our home is our refuge. This is the place I go to, like, escape from the rest of the world. But my friend Ian, who lives in Philadelphia, where everything's small and everything's tight, likes to say that, that your home is a platform for mission, not just a refuge. Certainly it's a place for rest, but your home should be a platform for mission. You should be thinking through, how do I use what God has given me to pursue hospitality? Hospitality will also require you to open your budget a little bit. See, we wanna think that our money is our money. But what God is saying is all that I have given to you, you're to be willing to offer to others. And as the New Testament says, what do you have that you have not received from God? So really, it's God's money anyway, and he's asking for you to use a little bit of it to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus and help people grow as disciples. Um, I remember a couple years ago when we, we'd had our second son. So I have uh, two boys, at four and two. And our second son, two years ago, when he was born, he was, I don't know if you've experienced this, but babies are like expensive to have. And so your, your medical bills start rolling through um, and, and life is full. And I remember looking at our budget and one, one month seeing like we had totally blown our food budget. And I was, I, so I talked to my wife like, hey babe, what happened? We, like our food budget's way off. And she said, well the beginning of the month, that one family was new to the church and so we invited them over. And then the other, the next week we heard somebody wasn't having a birthday party so we threw one for him. And then the third week this happened, and the fourth week this happened. And so we ended up doing this. And I realized we had spent, it, it was costly. It took some room in our budget. And so what we had to go back and do is actually add part of the budget category was for hospitality. To say, you know what, we're going to build this in. We're going to make this part of our lives. And hospitality also requires us to open our calendars. See, we often hear that time is money, that time is the most valuable thing we have. And and knowing the culture in in, uh, the the Dallas-Fort Worth area, time is at a premium here. Everybody is involved in a lot of activities. A lot of folks have intense jobs that keep them away. Lots of uh, family activities and school activities. And maybe the free nights on your calendar that rarely and miraculously appear, you're thinking, I cannot wait. Sometimes I feel like this where I'll see like a Tuesday, a week from this week, that's like a totally free Tuesday. And I just think, "Oh, praise the Lord. And I think the whole week about that Tuesday, right? And, 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 and then when the Lord says, well, that's, that's a perfect place to show hospitality. Something in me goes like, no, I don't want to do that. Or maybe you're in a different place. Maybe you're thinking we actually don't have any free Tuesdays. Like every time that we have is spoken for in our whole calendar. I don't know how we're going to possibly apply your message because we don't have any time to do it. And that's where the Lord gently but firmly calls us to remember what he's done for us, remember what he's offered for us, and for us to be willing to put our calendars back on the table and allow the Lord to make some room for us. So... Ask yourself this question. Are there any restrictions that you put on practicing hospitality, bringing strangers into your life and making them friends? I'm not saying to be unwise with your finances or something like that, but, but God does call us to offer these things up. One of the things that was most surprising to me as I studied ancient Near East hospitality was that most homes of that era were, like, less than 1,000 square feet for the whole family, right? So you've got, like, your sleeping area, your kitchen cooking area, your other, like, whatever areas, they're, I mean, they're like this. And, and God is telling those people to show hospitality. And I thought, man... Like my home's a little bit bigger than a thousand square feet and and I guess I could show hospitality. See, the Lord knew it would be costly. He knew it would require sacrifice, but he called his people to it. Second, hospitality requires a heart change. How do you do this? You need a heart change. Now, this is the point in the message where I confess that I am naturally not inclined to hospitality. Craig did not invite me because naturally I just love having people, new people in my home all the time. I tend to be a little bit of an introvert, not an extrovert. And so if you're if you're like an introvert, this part of the message is for you and for me. Um, I enjoy having time by myself. And some of that rest time is really necessary. But um, there's this biblical call that pushes us to sometimes be a little uncomfortable in extending hospitality. So how does somebody like me, a natural introvert that doesn't love having people, uh, new people constantly popping up in his life, how do we do this? The road to hospitality goes through the gospel. If you want to get from where you are, To practicing biblical hospitality, you think it's going to be a stretch. The road from where you are to biblical hospitality goes through the gospel. Because only the gospel can change our hearts. See, the gospel causes us to remember that we were once strangers to God. We had made ourselves strangers to God. And yet God came and gave of himself to us. Why? To bring us to God. We should have been cut off, but instead we were brought near. And friends, that is amazing grace. And we cannot forget how ridiculously amazing it is that people who were strangers and aliens have been brought near by the blood of Christ to relationship with him. And friend, if there is reluctance in your heart towards what God's calling you to do in this area, let me encourage you to meditate on what God has done for you. See, our standard of hospitality is not what the culture around us is doing. It's what the Lord has done for us. Now, in this area, um, God working and changing your heart can be powerful. Um, God's gift to me is my wife, Jen, and she loves having people in her home, and she is teaching me to love it. But one of the reasons, as you get to know my wife, one of the reasons that she has a heart for hospitality is during a really difficult time in her life, during her teen years, um, were a lot of really difficult things going on in her family. She, she ended up losing a sister later in high school. Her parents ended up separating. Um, it was a really difficult time for her. But her church family, and she would say this, her church family became her family. People in the church regularly opened their lives and their home to her. And this is at a time where she was in some ways wrestling with her faith, wrestling with how could God allow this to happen? What's going, you know, can I I keep doing this? And these people turned her from a stranger into a friend and kept loving her and bringing her along to follow Jesus. And why did they do that? They did that because their hearts had been changed by the example of Jesus themselves. And so now when my wife thinks about her experience and thinks about what God has done for her, she essentially helps lead our family in this area of hospitality. She's bringing me along, in a sense, to this. Real hospitality requires that kind of heart change. Third, hospitality requires intentionality. There's no season when hospitality is going to come to you naturally. Okay, no one, like there's no kind of drift that if you just don't do anything, you're gonna drift into hospitality. There's never a season where your calendar is gonna magically open up, right? I keep waiting for that season where I'll just have a bunch of free days. That's never gonna happen, I don't think, without intentionality. Hospitality requires intentionality both in planning and then taking advantage of moments that, that hospitality is spontaneous. So you probably need to, at the beginning of the month or week or some of you, maybe year, you plan out your year at a period of time. I know some people like that. Um, they say, I, we can meet for dinner in June, June 3rd. Is that good for you? <laughs> right? If you're one of those people, you got to get this on your calendar, then you got to create some room. You got to do some thinking. You got to be intentional about that. Yeah. And other times, it's just taking advantage of the opportunities that God spontaneously brings in front of you. Uh, this happened to us recently where, where we were not prepared at all to host somebody in our home to come and eat with us. And it seemed like, um, it was what God is calling us to do. So we did it, and we're scrambling. We're trying to figure out, do we pick up food? Can we put something together? And sometimes you take advantage of those moments. And every season, this is possible, but in every season, it requires intentionality. Now, I love one of my neighbors in my neighborhood, um, My lives across the street from me. He goes to our church, and they regularly have just put this on the calendar is they invite all the young adults in our church over to a free dinner on Monday nights. And if there's like two more important words to young adults than free dinner. I don't know what they are. And so they, and he makes like good stuff too. He makes like cool stuff like fish and chips or crazy Indian food. And they, they gather people around them, and it doesn't matter if they've never met you before, you're invited. They're, they're creating room for this in their lives. That's what this requires. It requires intentionality, but it also requires perseverance. I shared the story earlier of my mom reaching out to this trainer, and she, Well, she became part of our family. And six months after being in our lives, she came to church. And that first Sunday, she did not get saved. (laughs) And she did not get saved the second Sunday either or the second month. But somewhere along the way, she began to cry during worship. And somewhere along the way, God began to break her heart. And somewhere along the way, she began to open up about deep struggles that she had had or deep hurts that were in her heart. And a few months after that, she became a Christian. Hospitality requires, many times, perseverance. Maybe you try it. Maybe it's not the success, the smashing success you hope for. Maybe you invite uh, somebody who doesn't know Jesus into your life and, and you're disappointed because six months later they seem like they're in the same place. Hospitality requires perseverance. And so... And what we've seen is that hospitality is the art of turning strangers into friends. Hospitality, well, it's it's crucial to the mission of the church. And hospitality takes intentionality. That we need to think through how to do this well by the grace of God. I'll never forget when I showed up in a new church... Uh, for the first time, um, when I was doing an internship in Washington, D.C., I didn't know anybody in the church at all. And one of the, uh, the moms from the church, I was like 19 at the time, one of the moms from the church calls me up. The first question she asked me is, do you like cabbage? And I thought, that is the weirdest question I've ever heard on the phone. And I said, well, I, I mean, because I, I'm thinking, is she like giving away heads of cabbage or something? So I, I said, uh, I, you know, I, I, I do like some I'm not. I'm not sure. And he says, "Oh, good. I was hoping you would, because we would love to invite you for dinner." And I said, "Oh, oh, great!" Because I didn't. I mean, I was single. I had nothing to do. I didn't know anyone. And I said, "Well, when do you want to do that?" She's like, "Oh, in like two hours. Can you be over here?" And of course, you know, I was single. I didn't know anyone. So my calendar was open, right? Well, what I found out was that she was one of the pastor's wives, and their calendar was really full. And yet, after hearing about me coming to the church to serve, they made room in their life for me. And that's what friends, and that's what I believe I'm called to do for others as well. So, would you pray with me as we close? You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.